He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have your word to study, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Father, that your word explains clearly to us what it means, and that it is not something that we have to guess at. It is not something that is uh, somehow obscure, and we have to seek some sort of special uh, knowledge or special intuitive insight in order to understand it, but that you have used the conventions of human language in order to clearly and precisely and lucidly express your truth. Now, Father, as we study your word today, may we be encouraged by it and may our understanding of what you have done and and what you expect of us be increased and enlarged. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, where last time, last Sunday morning, we saw the eighth and great sign of the book of John, which is the resurrection. John chapter 20 is the chapter that, where at the conclusion of the chapter, we find the, the major purpose statement for the gospel. There are two purposes for the gospel. One relates to salvation. The other relates to the spiritual life or sanctification. And the purpose of the first 12 chapters and then chapter 20 and 21 is explained in John chapter 20, verse 31. These, that is, these signs... In context, talking about the eight signs of the gospel, these signs, specifically what gave rise to this was the resurrection. These signs have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, I want you to notice in that verse you have the phrase believe listed twice. You do not have any other statement related to salvation. That is the verb. And this becomes a major theme in the 20th chapter. And the first mention of it takes place in relationship to uh, John's discovery of the empty tomb back in verse 8, which is where we concluded last time. We saw last time that on Resurrection Sunday, that first Resurrection Sunday, that when it was discovered that the tomb was empty by Mary Magdalene and a group of other women that were coming to put uh, spices in the grave and to finish the uh, uh, preparation of the body, that Mary had arrived first and discovered that the grave was empty, and then she left and ran on to alert Peter and John to the fact that the grave was empty. And that they immediately ran to the tomb. Uh, John sprinted on ahead, and Peter was just a few steps behind him. John came to the open tomb, stopped, looked in, and then Peter ran past him into the tomb. And there is an interesting progression of words here 
and that is found, verse 5, stooping and looking in, referring to John. This is the Greek word blepo. He, he looks in, and the Greek word blepo simply means, looks like this, B-L-E-P-O. Simply means to glance. It is not a detailed examination. It's just a quick look. It says he stops and looks in. He glances in, and Peter probably blocked his vision as he ran past him and probably pushed him out of the way and went on in to check out what had happened. And we see that that Peter. He says Simon Peter therefore in verse six came following him and entered the tomb and beheld. The linen wrappings lying there. And the word translated beheld is the Greek word theoreo. T-H-E-O-R-E-O, which means to stare. And it indicates that Peter just runs in, his jaw drops open, and he's just looking. He just can't quite comprehend and understand all that he is seeing, and he just stops and stares at the uh, grave clothes that are lying there all in place, orderly, except the body has disappeared. And then in verse 8, the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered, and he saw and believed. And here we have another word, hurao, which indicates that uh, not only that he... he, um, uh, perceived something, or excuse me, it's the Greek word adon, which indicates perception, E-I-D-O-N, and it indicates not just that he has uh, visual acuity and can see what is there, but that he has understanding and perception of the significance of what he sees and he believes. It also brings into focus the fact that uh, this, the faith there is based upon empirical data. Now, in verse 9 we read, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture. And the word there indicates, probably should not be translated understand, because it, it, that, would be, that seems to be contradictory to uh, verse 8. For his, that would indicate the belief was apart from understanding. And, of course, as I quoted last time, numerous passages, Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 12, 38 through 40, Matthew 17, 9, Matthew 17, 22 and 23, Luke 9, 22 to 27, John 2, 18 to 22, where it is clear that Jesus had announced to the disciples that he would go to Jerusalem where he would suffer and die and that he would rise from the dead. So at this point he believes, but he hasn't remembered all the scripture. I think that the word that is translated um, that is translated understand there from the Greek oida also can in- indicate recall and remembrance. And I think that's better that, that he didn't recall the scripture. He did not. He he understood what Jesus had said. But he's not going back and integrating this with his understanding of the Old Testament yet. Now, at that point, I stopped because I want to look at this whole concept of faith. Because faith and believing becomes integral to understanding what is going on 
in the rest of this chapter, concluding with the famous gospel statement I quoted to begin with in John uh, 20.31. And faith is something that is not understood very well by uh, in our modern culture. So we have to stop and look at the doctrine of faith, which is in some sense a review of what we studied at the very inception of this Gospel of John study some uh, two and a half years ago. Now, when we come to faith, we have to understand that there are basically four systems of human perception, of human understanding. Four systems of human perception. The first is rationalism. Now, rationalism puts the ultimate source of truth. Now, this is important to understand this. The ultimate source of truth and understanding lies in human reason. So that man, on the basis of reason alone, can come to understand the answers to the ultimate questions in life. Why is man? What is man? What are we headed for? What is the purpose of suffering? Etc. This is, uh, in, in human history, this has been best articulated in the ancient world by Plato and in the modern world by uh, Descartes, who was a uh, Jesuit geometrician in the uh, 17th century. Now, Descartes is well known because of his famous statement, I think, therefore I am. And what he meant by that is that in his way of thinking, he was trying to prove that that things exist. How do you get to know anything? How do you know anything for sure? How do you know that anything is true? And, of course, that's the ultimate issue in in perception. How do you know that something's true? How do do we know that the gospel is true? How do we we know that that, uh, Christ died on the cross for our sins and paid the penalty and rose the third day? What is the basis for knowledge? And the basis in, in rationalism is human reason. And as Descartes sat down, he thought, well, I have to figure out some way to prove this. So I want to, uh, let's see, how do I know that anything exists? Well, I don't. Maybe it's just a cosmic deception. Maybe God is just uh, giving, giving some sort of great hallucination, and uh, this is all a dream or a vision. Well, and he would start thinking like that, and he would say, how do I know that anything exists? Well, I don't. And as he thought logically through everything, ultimately he realized that because he was thinking, i.e. he had self-consciousness, because he was thinking, he must exist. Now, from that he was going to try to prove the existence of God and everything else, and that was the basis for his whole system. But it starts on the basis of reason alone inside his thinking. Notice that he's not outside, he's not looking at, at any kind of empirical data, I see the trees, I see the water, I see order in the universe. He's starting with himself, the very fact that he thought, therefore he knew he existed, and then on the basis of rigorous logic, he was going to try to prove the existence of of the universe, of everything in the universe, and ultimately the existence of God. I think he failed to do that because ultimately human reason is, is as a system is faulty because it is based on faith assumptions. Now, The reason I say that is because on the basis of human reason, when you start off with rationalism, you have, you've made certain assumptions. 
they're never brought out on the table, but certain assumptions are already made that somehow human reason is going to be capable on its own of being able to answer all these questions. The meaning of life, the purpose of life, the creation of man, is there a God? All of these things. So there's underneath his overt statements is, are very subtle assumptions that are made about the nature of human intellect. And those assumptions are just are not provable. They're called first principles, and they're assumed on the basis of faith. Now, the second system of human perception, or the answers to the question, what is truth? How do we know that there is truth? Is called empiricism. Empiricism in the ancient world was exemplified in the philosophical system of Aristotle and uh, later by the... Um, uh, many of the uh, scholastics, uh, philosopher, theologians in the Middle Ages, such as uh, Thomas Aquinas, and then later on through people such as John Locke and uh, David Hume, Barclay, and others. So empiricism argues from the existence of external sayings and sense perception, what I see, what I hear, what I experience, that on the basis, starting from those things, I can then logically argue to uh, the existence of the universe, meaning, value, absolutes, etc. So empiricism is, and, and a combination of empiricism and rationalism really are the basis of the entire scientific method. That man on the basis either of his own intellect, which is finite, remember, or man on the basis of his of his in, experience or his what he senses through his through the external sense organs that man is able to find and discover the answers to the ultimate questions of the universe why does man exist is there a god what is the meaning of life is there right or wrong etc but empiricism is also flawed because it operates on a basic faith assumption and that is that that man can on the basis of his own reason because he still uses reason and empiricism, uh, go from these external sense objects to ultimate meaning. The problem is that even if you have 100 pieces of data, let's call that X, you have 100 pieces of data and you correctly interpret that data and come to conclusion Y, that who is to say that you're not going to come to the discovery of another piece of data down the road which will completely invalidate conclusion Y. And that's the ultimate problem of empiricism is it too is based on a faith assumption at its very core. Now what happens in history is that you usually have various cycles, various uh, trends of history where you have uh, rationalism and then rationalism falls apart, and that's replaced by empiricism. And empiricism falls apart. And since both empiricism and rationalism have been based on the rigorous use of logic and human reason as a means to go from, from first principles to conclusions, that reason is rejected. Reason and logic are then rejected... And what moves into the vacuum is an irrationalism, usually expressed in terms of mysticism and 
intuition. How do you know it's true? Well, I just know that's true. You know, don't confuse me with facts. Uh, reason is wrong. Uh, I've just, how do you know God exists? Well, I've had an experience with God. And so this really emphasizes some sort of internal. Empiricism emphasizes external experience. Measurable, repeatable, definable experience like you have in the scientific, uh, uh, scientific method. In mysticism, it emphasizes some sort of internal experience, some sort of, of uh, intuitive insight, what I call an epistemological hot flash. All of a sudden, you, something comes along, oh, that must be true because I just, I just know it's true. And you see this happen with some people in, in certain situations where they, have, uh, uh, they encounter something or they have a dream or somebody in their family gets healed and they just know it had to be God. Well, what's the evidence? There's no evidence. They just know it. And, and, it is so, and the experience seems so real and so overwhelming and so powerful that, that you can't critique it with logic or revelation or anything else because, because at its very core there's this intuitive validation. And see, this is something that this, this kind of mysticism is present in different brands of evangelicalism. How do you know the Bible's true? We all sing the hymn. He lives. He lives. You ask me how I know he lives? What's the answer in the, hymn, in the hymn? He lives within my heart. Pure subjectivism. See, that's what I call soft mysticism. We Ask me how I know he lives? Because the Bible tells me so. That's how I know he lives. Not because he lives within my heart. That's, just, that's not any different from when you go down the street and uh, you encounter the uh, missionaries in their... Uh, in their little black suits and their white shirts and tie, and they come knock on your door, and they come from the Church of the Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as Mormons, and you ask them, well, how do you know it's true? And I say, because I've had the burning in my bosom. That's their phrase. I've had this internal flash that I know this is true. And see, what's interesting is that uh, I've been critical for years. I won't mention the denomination. Years of a very large, conservative, evangelical denomination in the U.S. And uh, because they, their theology is at root grounded in this sort of subjective, soft Christian subjective mysticism. And it also happens, according to a, 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 a Mormon missionary that tried to convert me when I was over at Palmyra, where it all began years ago. He didn't have to stand a chance. He was also had been converted to Mormonism out of this denomination. He told me that that denomination produces the, is the largest single group from which the Mormons get their converts. Why? Because they're not taught to think objectively on the basis of doctrine. They're taught to think that ultimately we know it's true because it's in my heart. And, and so if you're basing truth as the ultimate criterion for truth is through how you feel, which is what that is, which is endemic to most modern evangelicalism that bases it on some sort of soft mysticism, whether it's holiness, Pentecostal, charismatic, Wesleyan, it all, almost always goes back to this kind of soft, soft mysticism. That mysticism rejects reason and logic, and so truth is known because you have this internal uh, conviction that it's true. But we can have some sort of in, internal confidence in all kinds of things that aren't necessarily true. I mean, how many of us at one time or another, maybe even in the last month or so, have heard somebody say, well, I just know so-and-so is going to win that election. 
I just have this, this internal sense. See, that's, that's just soft mysticism, intuitive. That's how you may be right and you may be wrong. And so we always remember the times when we're right. And we forget the times when those things are wrong, and then somebody comes along and uses that in some way to convince us of, of the value of, of intuition. And uh, this happens often in, in all kinds of different ways in life, but these, this is just a form of mysticism. So there's three basic, what I would call, uh, human viewpoint bases for knowing truth. Rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism. And, and I always say that mysticism is nothing more than rationalism and empiricism gone to seed. And what I mean by that is that in, in rationalism, rationalism starts with what's inside your brain, but it proceeds logically to its conclusions. Mysticism starts with what's inside your brain. It's, it's not external data. It's intuitive. It's inside you. It's this, this hot flash you've gotten, this, this, this metaphysical insight that you've received about the nature of the universe. That's inside your brain. There's no external reality there. And you argue to conclusions not on the basis of logic, but on the basis of anti-logic, irrationalism. In fact, the, the, the enemy of mysticism is logic. And that's why you see in, in the modern trend of our society, which is called postmodernism, that there is this core anti-logic that's going on there. And you, oh, don't, be, don't confuse me with all that, that outdated logic. You, you people, you're just caught up with all this kind of Greek thinking. And, and I, you, you just got to just relax and get in touch with the universe. And then you'll know what the truth is. And uh, so it's just... Uh, rationalism gone to seed and it's a rejection of ultimately it's a rejection that man on the basis of logic can can come up with anything but at the very core of their position I always like to point these little discrepancies out at the very core of their position they're using logic to communicate what they believe because language is based on logic and meaning you you make any kind of statement a proposition and what makes it a proposition is it can be either validated or invalidated. The very use of words that, that when I say a word like ball, you know what I mean because there is some sort of external criterion and logic. Language is based, just to make any kind of statement, is based on logic. So when the mystic comes along and makes any statement whatsoever, once they open their mouth, they're invalidating their whole system. They're logically inconsistent. And the same thing can be applied in many ways to evolutionists and, and any other system that denies an absolute God of the universe. That to even make an utterance uh, of meaning implies that you believe there is meaning. And yet to say there is no meaning in the universe assumes that there is meaning to be able to make a statement that there is no meaning. Just think about that. That can be your morning devotions this week to get your, to get your brain going. So when we talk about how we know truth, there are basically four systems, as I said. The first three are human viewpoint systems, rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism. And the fourth is divine revelation. The fourth is divine revelation, and that is that God the Creator, has create, who created all things as they are, has communicated to man the information he needs so that he will not step out independently on the basis of his own experience or reason and come to the wrong conclusions. 
God's given us the information we need that you can't learn from the basis of reason, empiricism, or mysticism. I'm not saying that the use of reason or empiricism is wrong. The use of reason or experience or experiential data or empirical data is not wrong unless it's used independently of God's revelation. God's revelation is the umbrella under which human reason and empirical data can be properly interpreted. But if you reject divine revelation which defines the nature of reality, then you're left with man just trying to conjure up the nature of reality on the basis of his own limited reason and limited experience. So I'm not, but what undergirds all four systems is something called faith. In rationalism, the object of faith is human reason. In empiricism, the object of faith is human experience, that man has the ability to properly interpret his experience. In mysticism, the object of faith is, is the, the meaning and interpretation of these intuitive hot flashes. In divine revelation, the object of faith is the revelation of God. And so it is the object of faith that makes the difference, not faith itself. So faith is something that everybody utilizes at every stage along the way in life. And what makes something significant or not is the, what is significant is not faith, but the object of faith. The object of faith. Now that means that we have to define something about faith. Having said all of that, we must define faith. What I mean by faith, or what faith means, is to trust something, to rely on something, to have confidence in something, to believe something to be true, and or to accept something as true. Let me say that again. Faith means to trust in something, to rely on something, to have confidence in something, to believe in something, to accept something to be true. So in order to operate, faith relies on a certain level of understanding or comprehension. I mean, if you're going to accept something as true, you have to have some sort of comprehension of what that something is. Faith, on the other hand, does not mean, it does not mean to commit to something to invite, or to feel. Those are not synonymous terms. Faith does not mean to commit to something, to invite something or someone, or to feel. Now, historically, in Christianity, there's a couple of very uh, interesting, profound definitions of faith that run somewhat contrary to some modern arguments and some modern notions. One of the things that you always run into today in, in various debates that are going on about the nature of the gospel and, and the nature of the gospel today, you would think after 2,000 years we would understand it, but, but every generation has to fight over the gospel again, that, that the, one of the major battlegrounds is the meaning of faith. And one of the issues that has arrived or come up in, is is this issue of 
intellectual assent. There are those who would say that, that faith is intellectual assent to the truth. There are others who say that, no, it's got to be something more. But listen to what Augustine said. Augustine was a tremendous thinker in the, in the um, 4th to 5th century uh, A.D. He was the Bishop of Hippo and one of the, uh, probably the greatest thinker, theologian, uh, after, after Paul. He, that does not mean that he had many things right. He had some serious problems and aspects of his theology, but in some areas he was quite profound. His definition of faith was that faith is the voluntary assent to the truth. So when you hear somebody come along and they say that, that, that uh, faith just can't be intellectual assent, uh, they're not very well read or they haven't thought about the subject very much. Augustine said it was voluntary assent to the truth. Not only that, but Calvin came along. Calvin came along some little over more than a thousand years later. And Calvin said that faith was a steady and certain knowledge of the divine benevolence toward us. So what we see from these two important definitions of faith is that faith involves volition at some level. It is not primarily volitional. It is primarily knowledge, though. It involves the act of assent, which means to agree that something is true. So there's a volitional aspect. There is the assent that something is true, and it involves knowledge. It involves knowledge and understanding. Faith always has as its object, always has as its object, something that can be expressed as a proposition. Now, a proposition is any statement that can be proved true or false. Now, I know that I'm making this sound awfully intellectual for some of you, but frankly, I know some of you get out in ministries where you're talking with people who are really bad, and you really get in some hot arguments over this. And you have to understand defined terms so, it's so important in this. A proposition is a technical term. A proposition is any statement that can be validated or falsified. Therefore, a question, what are you doing tomorrow? Well, you can't prove that to be true or false. See, a question is not a proposition. A, uh, a command, you know, go to the store and buy a paper. Well, that can't be proved true or false either. So a command is not a proposition. A proposition is any statement about reality, such as Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Well, either he did or he didn't. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Well, either he did or he didn't. Uh, you're wearing a blue shirt today. Well, either you are or you are not. Those are propositions. So faith is always directed towards something that is a proposition and can be proved true or false. That means that, that in essence, if it is true, there are two options, true or false. If it is a true proposition, you are agreeing that it is true. If it is false, then you will agree that it is false. 
Now, agreeing with something is true or false is the meaning of assent. You do that with your mind, not your emotions, so therefore it is knowledge. You make a decision that, yes, I believe that's true, that involves your volition. So therefore we can see that faith, faith has to do with a, a assenting to the veracity of a proposition based on your knowledge and understanding of that proposition. It is therefore not irrational, it is not illogical, it is not intuitive. It is something that is based upon uh, understanding and knowledge. Now, we're going to come back and look at that in a minute in terms of its significance and importance. So we looked at some basic introductory definition aspects. And secondly, I want to look at some the etymology of the word, the etymology of the Greek word and how it is used. The Greek word for faith is the word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis. It is used, first of all, as an attribute for what causes uh, trust or faith. It is used as an attribute of, or the, excuse me, the object of that faith. In Titus 2.10 and First and Second Thessalonians uh, 1.4. In an active sense, pistis means, means faith or trust or reliance upon something. Now, you rely upon something because it is true. There are different types of faith or different categories of faith. In the scriptures, the first is saving faith. For example, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Notice it is through faith, it is not because of faith. It is through faith. And the faith has as its object, as we have already said, a proposition. Now, the point I want to make here is, what is the proposition? This is what is so important. This is one reason why people get wrapped around the axle and say, well, it's not just intellectual faith. Because there are, you have to understand the nature of the proposition. And the proposition is that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for me. That's what we believe at salvation, is that Jesus Christ died as my substitute. Now, I, I can say that I believe the Bible says that Jesus Christ died as my substitute. That's not a saving statement. For example, I can say I believe that Darwin taught that man evolved from monkeys to man. That doesn't mean I believe that man evolved from monkeys to man. You see, there's a difference. The proposi- How you construct the proposition is what's important. The Bible says that we are to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. That's the proposition. Not that he died for me- Not that the Bible says, but that he died for me. So that's the essence of the proposition. Anything else is less than a correct proposition. 
And there's a lot of confusion today over the nature of this proposition. In fact, one of the most horrendous things that we discover is that, that and I was out on some websites and saw this, this last week, is that typical gospel presentation today is divorced from Scripture. And you'll see him talk about the fact that you need to repent from sin, and I don't find that in certain passages. It's not in John at all. He never uses the word repent. So that's not necessary for the gospel. If John is written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the Messiah, the Son of God, by believing you might have life through his name, and he never uses the word repent, then guess what? Repentance is not necessary to salvation. All that is necessary is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. So that's usually the first mistake you find in the typical gospel presentation. And then after they go through the second stage where they, second stage where they say that everybody's a sinner, and they usually get that right, they come to the third stage, which now, in order to, uh, to have salvation, you need to invite Jesus Christ into your life. Well, wait a minute. Where do you find that? Just, and, and, and I, in fact, I emailed off to this one website. I said, just give me one passage that says that, and they finally had to admit that there wasn't one. And, and the point is that that is the way the gospel is. And you ask people, how do you know you're saved? Well, I invited Jesus into my life. Well, wait a minute. Inviting Jesus into your life is not semantically equivalent to believing for example, let me give you a somewhat supercilious illustration. Do you believe that Bill Clinton is president of the United States? Is that the same thing as saying you want to have him over for dinner? <laughs> Let's turn to Re- Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. This is the passage that is frequently quoted to substantiate this type of interpretation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, is the last of the letters to the seven churches in the prologue to uh, the revelation to the Apostle John, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, God is speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ actually is speaking to the church, and he is giving various judgments or evaluations of each one of these congregations. And he is really condemnatory to the church of Laodicea because of their uh, uh, making human viewpoint the priority rather than Bible doctrine. And he comes to them in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, I read those three verses, the one before and the one after, because it's important to get the context in order to properly interpret any passage of Scripture. The overall context is that he is writing to a church. This is a collection of believers. So, at first glance, it seems that he is addressing believers and not unbelievers. Secondly, but of course some people have a problem with that because of the description of the Laodicean church. They want to assume that, well, this is just, they're just a church in name. They're not made up of believers. Well, how can we demonstrate from anything else in the passage that he's talking to believers? 
Well, when he comes to verse 19, those whom I love. And the Greek word here is uh, phileo. It is the second major verb for love in the Greek New Testament. It's not agapao, which is God's general love for all mankind and is the most uh, prominent word used in the New Testament. But God has an agapao love for unbelievers. But there's nowhere in the Greek New Testament where God has a phileo love for unbelievers. God does not have this kind of intense, intimate love for unbelievers. Furthermore, not only does it say that he loves this church with this kind of intimate, intense love, but that he is those whom he loves with this kind of love, he reproves and disciplines. And Hebrews chapter 11, uh, chapter 12 says that the, whom the Lord loves or his sons, he disciplines and scourges alive. So those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. This is family operation here. This is not talking about judgment on unbelievers. And he says, therefore, be zealous and repent. So this is not related. Repentance here is not related to uh, turning to Christ as Savior. Uh, incidentally, the word repent is from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change your mind. It is not a term for uh, emotion. It is not a term that is for remorse or regret or to feel sorry for your sins. It means simply to change your mind about something. Well, once again, I think that if you are going to use repentance in terms of the gospel, then that relates to changing your mind about Jesus Christ's claims. But it is not remorse and feeling sorry for your sins that is so often, so often presented. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. That means to change your mind about sin. He is not talking about phase one, salvation. He is talking about phase two, which is the believer's relationship with the Lord. Then we have an image used, a metaphor used in verse 20. It is the metaphor of a man standing at the door and knocking. Well, first of all, you need to ask the question, what door? Now, the way that this is often presented is that this is, this is Christ standing at the door of your heart wanting to come into your life. Well, where in the world in this passage do you get that? Well, the answer is you don't. You just have to, you just have to read it in because you, you're too lazy to understand what the text actually says. I stand at the door and knock. It's a metaphor for a person's life. Now, this is explained in the second part of the phrase. I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, eating in the New Testament is a picture of communion or fellowship. It is not a picture of, of salvation. For example, the, this morning we had the Lord's table. In the early church, they just didn't confine themselves to the cup and the bread, they would sit down and have an entire meal together, and at the conclusion of which they would have a communion service. But it was a time of fellowship, and this is linked together in passages like Acts 2.42, where it says the priority of the early church was the apostles' teaching and prayer, the breaking of bread, I mean, the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, breaking of bread in prayer defines fellowship, and it's fellowship with God there, and it's breaking of bread. So this whole concept of sitting down and eating is a picture of fellowship. It is not a picture of salvation. 
So the bottom line is that when you come to Revelation 3.20, Jesus is not talking about the fact that he wants them to get saved, but that this church is an apostate church. They're made up of believers who are in reversionism, and they need to confess their sins and get back in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can fulfill the, the mission and objective that God has given them for a church. So Revelation 3.20 certainly is not... Uh, any kind of substantiation for the fact that that um, we ought to invite Jesus into our life in order to be saved. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures never, ever present it that way. It is always presented in terms of belief. Well, what happens is that you're talking to somebody and they'll say, well, people just don't understand belief anymore, so let's use something that they can understand. Well, if they can't understand belief, then just explain it to them. Don't introduce a false concept. Yet that is exactly what is happening. And see, what, they, what people don't realize is this plays into the hands of uh, Satan in distracting and distorting people and blinding them to the truth of the gospel. Because you are, if you express the gospel in terms of invite Jesus into your life, then you are explaining a false gospel. And that is anathema according to uh, Galatians chapter 1 verses uh, 5 through 7. There is a, it is a false gospel because you're introducing works. You are doing something. You are the one inviting Jesus into, you, into your heart. But in the gospel, it is always presented as God who is the one calling. Kaleo is the Greek word, and it means to call or to invite. It is God who is calling or inviting the unbeliever. It is not the unbeliever who is calling or inviting God. Jesus is the one who said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so what happens in the invite Jesus... is you completely reverse the poles of the gospel so that it is man doing God a favor and not God doing man a gracious favor in providing salvation. So it's incumbent upon us as believers to, no matter what else we might do in life, at least get the gospel straight. It is faith and faith alone in Christ alone. So pistis... The Greek word is used not only as an attribute, as in Titus 2.10 and 2 Thess 1.4, but it also means faith, confidence, or trust to recognize something as true. And is used that way in terms of the saving faith, which is the gospel, but also it is used that way in relationship to uh, sanctifying faith, the Christian life faith, which is the faith rest drill. Faith rest drill takes faith where you believe something to be true and mixes it with promises. And from promises, it uses um, doctrinal rationales, which means that underneath every promise, a promise simply encapsulates some doctrine. And then you can think in terms of that doctrine and reason that if God is omnipotent, that means he's in control of everything. Uh, I have a problem with something, but that God's in control of everything. That means he's in control of my circumstances. Therefore, 
I don't have anything to worry about because God is in control. And that brings the third stage, which is a doctrinal conclusion. So these are the three stages of the faith rest drill. But faith, again, is agreeing to or assenting to the veracity of a promise or a doctrinal principle or doctrinal conclusion. Faith means to accept something to be true, to agree that it is true. It is intellectual assent. It is not emotional. It is not primarily volitional. It is intellectual. As Calvin said, it is a sure and certain knowledge. That is something you do with your mind. You understand a proposition that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. When I understand the terms of the proposition and I agree that they are true, then I relax and rest in that. Let me give you an illustration. When you are doing that monthly activity known as balancing your checkbook, or perhaps that annual activity known as filling out your tax return, and you have all of this numerical data in front of you, you sit down and you start working through it. When you realize that those numbers balance out, you agree or assent that they are true, do you continue to work? No, you don't. You put that pen down and you put that in the envelope and you put the... The, the bank statement back in the drawer and you relax because those numbers were in agreement and you rest because you agree that it's true. You don't keep working. See, that's what assent a, a means. It means to believe something is true. The problem is that many people out there are assenting or agreeing to the wrong proposition. That's the problem. It is not that they've just got a bad uh, concept of faith and it's only intellectual. The problem is that they've got the wrong thing to believe in the first place. And they don't have any a correct understanding of the gospel or a correct understanding of doctrine. So faith is always intellectual assent, but it's not just academic knowledge. And this is why we have to go back to our understanding of the dynamics of learning, which I call the grace learning spiral. And this goes back to the fact that we are taught, let's say, gospel hearing, either a pastor, teacher, or an evangelist, or someone who is operating as an evangelist, that means you explaining the gospel to somebody, uh, presents the gospel, and God the Holy Spirit makes that understandable. Now, the reason the Holy Spirit has to make that understandable in relation to John 16:5 and 6, that he is the one who convicts the world uh, according to uh, righteousness and judgment, is that the unbeliever does not have a human spirit. He is uh, spiritually brain dead and uh, lacks a human spirit, can't understand the things of the gospel according to 1 Corinthians 2:12 to 14. So the Holy Spirit serves as a substitute, makes the gospel understandable. He doesn't understand it for the unbeliever. He doesn't understand it for you when you're learning doctrine. He just makes it understandable. You still have to engage your uh, little gray cells in order to understand it. But he is going to make it perspicuous to the unbeliever. Now, at that point, the unbeliever has to exercise volition. Whether or not he is going to believe it or not. Now, once he believes it, it enters into his soul. Now, or his thinking. Once he says, I understand it, 
Okay, that, at this point he's not believing it yet, he's simply understanding it, and at that point it becomes gnosis. Gnosis is academic knowledge. Gnosis is the Greek, there are two primary Greek words here, gnosis and epinosis, and I use a concentric circle here because they, they represent the two areas of the, um, of the thinking of the soul. The outer circle represents the noose, and the inner circle represents the cardia. Now, cardia is a word for heart. Now, we often use heart in this sense. It's obviously a metaphor. It's not literal. It's not talking about the physical organ in your body. Very rarely is it used. I think it's only used of that maybe one or two times in the entire scripture. It is used to refer to something, usually at the core of something. We talk about that way all the time. The heart of a matter. We're talking about the essential core. We talk about uh, the heart of a, of a tree. We're talking about that inner core. The heart, we talk about that. You get hearts of palm to put on your salad. And it's the inner core. And that's what heart refers to. It's the core of something. And so the, the, the mentality of the soul is divided into two sections. The noose and the cardia. The noose is the arena of academic knowledge or gnosis. And the cardia is the realm of epinosis. Now, what happens is, at the point of hearing the gospel, the Holy Spirit makes it understandable. The unbeliever engages his volition, and he understands it, and it becomes academic knowledge. At that point, he has to choose whether to accept it or reject it. And we know from the Scripture, we've gone through this from from the fact that the word elenko is used in John chapter 16, that God the Holy Spirit makes it absolutely clear and every single unbeliever has irrefutable evidence at the point of gospel hearing that it's true. Because the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to give them irrefutable evidence that the gospel is true. So they understand. They may say, I don't understand it, I think it's foolishness, but that's the operation of negative volition at this point. The Holy Spirit is going to make it understandable. They're going to, if they understand it and accept it, then it becomes uh, gnosis, and then they can accept it or reject it. Often this happens simultaneously. But if they accept it, operate positive volition, then it becomes epinosis, and at that point they exercise trust in the gospel, and they are regenerated, and God the Holy Spirit then simultaneously creates a human spirit and imputes it to them along with eternal life. That's the dynamic that takes place uh, mentally in the soul. So that it is not something that happens uh, experientially or emotionally, but it has to do with knowledge and understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he did at the cross. And this is what happens now with... um, with the Apostle John, is that when he sees uh, all of this in the, in the empty tomb, he immediately understands what has gone on. He understands what Jesus has said about his resurrection, and he believes. And at that point, he, he is, uh, but this is not his salvation, because we know he has already been saved, but this just advances him along in his understanding. See, we're living it, this is a time when there is major changes going on. When, when the, the disciples were initially saved, it's under the law. And they're looking forward to the coming of Messiah. 
when they see Jesus come, they are believing that he is the Messiah. And now at this point, they have to believe that he rose from the dead. And so we will see that, be, that all of them do that. And that culminates in Thomas when we come down to verses 26 and 27. But the object of faith then, and I just want to make this so clear, the object of faith is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Nothing else. That's it. That he is our substitute. And that is what we must explain to people when we are presenting the gospel, because it is that that the Holy Spirit is going to make clear according to John chapter 16. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have had the opportunity to study your word and to to become clear on the meaning of faith, that it is indeed assent with our minds, which means that it is not anti-intellectual, it's not just based on some sort of intuitive insight or, or some sort of feeling, but that it is based on an understanding of who you are and what you have done through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins that he died on the cross for our sins and he was buried according to the scriptures and that he rose again from the grave on the third day, thus conquering physical death and conquering the suffering that is the consequence of spiritual death. But he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross and so our salvation is based in faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not based upon any human factor. It's not based on good works. It's not based on moral reformation or repentance or feeling sorry for our sins or any other human factor. Therefore, if there is anyone here this morning who is without hope and without eternal life, unsure of their eternal destiny, then right now you can make it clear. All you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. At that instant, you are saved. You are regenerated. You have eternal life which can never be lost. And now the issue is what are you going to do now that you are a child of God? And that means to advance and to grow by means of grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the challenge for every believer here to continue to grow and advance by means of grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would continue to help us understand these things and challenge us with them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.